So tonight is a recap. So we're just going to catch everybody up in case you missed some. So we got to cover 10 chapters in less than an hour. Come on, somebody. <laughs> Miracles happen. So uh, we'll jump in. And then the fun part is at the end, we're going we're gonna to test you to see how well you remember all this stuff. Mm. Come on, somebody. We're going to give away some giveaways this time. But let's jump in. This, if you're new, when you see it on a slide, usually somewhere in the top corner, uh, that corresponds with your worksheet. So if you want a worksheet, David is the one always handing them out. You can wave at us, David, in the very back. You need a worksheet, wave your hand. we got a few over here that need one. And uh, we'll get you a worksheet. And then all you have to do is just fill in the blanks. And usually, uh, I think it's a little different tonight, but usually uh, the slides will correspond to the blanks because they're in all capitals. So if you see a word that's all capitalized, it's usually just going in order with the blanks, so it makes it a little easier to know what you can capitalize. So grab your Bible and open up to the book of Revelation, chapter 22, the very end. Revelation chapter 22, verse 10. This is where we're headed. Then he instructed me, do not seal up the prophetic words in this book, for the time is near. Let the one who is doing harm continue to do harm. And let the one who is vile continue to be vile. And let the one who is righteous continue to live righteously. And let the one who is holy continue to be holy. So I just want to make a comment. We'll touch on this as we get to chapter 22. But as we really dive back into it, it can become very discouraging when we look around and think, what's going on in our world? Uh, I was hoping things would get better. Uh, I, was, I had my heart set on my country getting to be better and not worse, or vice versa, whether it's violent or political or relational or sexual or whatever we would you know, measure. And it just feels like that there's this moment where we like to evaluate, well, if we're getting more righteous, then there should be less wicked people. And if you're getting more wicked, there would be less righteous people, because that's what we do as humans. We like to balance the, you know, the checks and the balances. But the way this reads in Revelation 22 is quite differently, because it assumes it's what Jesus says, that both are growing significantly beside each other. That those who live ungodly and unrighteous will be growing just as quickly. But then it says this, but those of you that live righteously, you need to keep doing so and you need to keep living holy. And what I believe we're facing in our generation is a quandary of understanding the power of living righteous and living holy. And it, it is the battle that we're going to see as we move through the book of Revelation. Those two are going to fight each other. Righteous holiness versus unrighteous unholiness. And they, they clash in the middle and fight each other. This is what it said. Look, verse 12, I'm coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all the people according to their deeds. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the First, the Last, and the Beginning and the End. I think this pretty much sums up everything that we believe in the Bible and it tells us that we're not just living on this infinite, endless cycle 
but there's coming a moment of an end where you will be rewarded. And I know right now sometimes serving God, it feels like, does it pay off? Does it pay to serve Jesus? I live godly, why me? I'm serving God, then why did this stuff happen to me? And it can kind of feel like, is it really worth it? But Jesus really intimates in the reading of it that, that you have to make a decision of how you will live and then understand that decision can also be motivated by there's coming a day where he comes and he's going to repay you. And you're going to get rewarded for what you live. So even though the times may be difficult that we're in right now, we live in right now, or struggling with right now, the blessed hope is that he's coming and that I get rewarded. So we're about to, Ryan and I were laughing in the Bible reading project, we're, you know, we're about to really tackle the hard chapters. I, I think I call them the chapters everybody wants to know about, the, the real dirty deed chapters, chapter 11 through about 18. The next seven chapters are very much what we think of when we think Revelation 666, Mark of the Beast, Satan's kingdom and all of that. So I'm looking forward to doing it and teaching it. I've never taught systematically through it this way, so I'm learning a lot as well, and I hope you are. I never mind questions. Uh, I'll try to make room at the end. I had a lot of people say, could you make room at the end for questions? So I'm going to try to do that as we move forward, is leave room for questions. But I don't care either way. If we don't have time, you can reach out on Instagram, Facebook. Most of you probably have my cell phone number you can shoot a text say hey I got a question and I'll do my best to answer those so I never mind helping so let's just start from the very beginning of where we started uh, in chapter one and the thing we really needed to talk about which made sense to me of the whole book of how we prophetically walk through it and we spent uh, a great um, uh, entire hour actually talking about how we measure time because everybody wants to know time, when is it going to be, when does Jesus come, how long will the tribulation be, tell me when, when, how. And so time is an interesting concept because we've been put in the middle of it by God. This eternal God stuck us in the middle of time and everything that God is working is built on a timetable. And because we're so time oriented, if God doesn't work in our time frame, we, we can feel, well, he left me out. You know, Gary, where is he when I need him? He didn't show up when I needed him in time. And so we picked up this concept in our first teaching about time, and this is the typical way, especially today, humans view time. There was a big bang, billions of years we've been on the planet. They just dug up a new woolly mammoth. It's billions of years old, and we started out in the particulate, uh, the particle stage, then the galactic stellar planetary, the chemical, the biological, the cultural, and the future. And all of those, we're kind of in the planetary, chemical, biological, cultural, but we're moving, like exponentially moving through time. And once you die, you're nothing but a figment of a human. You're dead and gone. Maybe you left a legacy. Maybe you wrote a book. Maybe you made history. But time is just exponentially moving. And even Jesus will allude to that as time moves, knowledge will increase more and more and more and quicker and quicker. And I would say most of us in the room that are, you know, my, my parents are in their 80s, but if you know, you're 60 and up, you would say that technology has exponentially increased over your lifetime. Uh, we were t laughing today or yesterday at lunch about my dad. Just I remember the first time I saw a TV. 
I remember the first time I saw a telephone. I mean, come on, somebody. Hallelujah. <laughs> right? Like time exponentially. And now I can do TV and phone and medical and money and business and life and everything I do on a phone that I can carry around in my pocket. That's uh, how time is typically viewed. You're a blip on the map. Make the most of your time. You'll live here. You'll die. Humanity moves on. We landed on this. This is on your worksheet. That the rethink we wanted you to do is that time has a beginning and an end. It's not an indefinite continued progression. There is coming an end to it all. I know we look, if we look backward, we can say, well, we've been here a long time. But if we look forward, here's the one thing we know if we look to the future. We do not know when it ends. We can backtrack and try to find a beginning. If you're an evolutionist, you backtrack billions of years and try to find the Big Bang. If you're a creationist, you backtrack all the way to Adam and start with Adam and God. And, and then we try to balance science with God out. So it's, it's a little easier to go backward and try to find the beginning point. But when we turn forward, uh, if we're not careful, we lose sight that there is an end coming. And the people I'm talking to now, everybody's kind of having this weird feeling like I feel like the end is near. You know, that just weird things are happening in our world and things we've never seen before. But we took some time to discuss that there is an end in sight. And this is what we landed on, that time is not just an indefinite period of time. Time is a person. And the reason we said when you see time as a person is we connected it to Jesus. Because Jesus in chapter 1 says of himself, I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega, I'm the beginning, I'm the end... I'm the first and I'm the last. And so the, the thinking was, which helps us understand Revelation, is that it's not time starts and continues on forever. It's that time goes out to a certain point and then it turns around and comes back home. So rather than time being out and it just keeps continuing, it goes out, it turns around, it comes back home. Why? Because if time is a person... And that time is, and the person is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, and the end. Jesus is the start of time, the end of time. He was there at the beginning of time, and he's going to be there at the end of time. Then we could connect time to him, which to me, when I connect time to Christ, life makes more sense. Because I'm not just running an endless barrage of events and circumstances. I am, I am running a race that what Paul will say, that I'm going to finish a course and be rewarded by the person that's waiting on me at the end of all of this. There is a person that's waiting. Again, this was lesson one that we talked about. We looked at this thought. Most people view life this way. You start out, for me, it was April 23rd, 1965. I'm 55 years old now. I'm somewhere in the middle uh, of my life, maybe even moving more toward the end. But the end is you die. We bury you. Hopefully your kids and grandkids show up. We clap. We sing some songs. We put a nice headstone. And if people love you enough, they come back and visit and put flowers on the grave. And we call this life. Now, if we're a Christian, we try to say, but there's something after this. So in a weird way, it keep, does keep going. But this is the typical way we think about it. And we say, just live that little stretch of road you're on. Live it in a good way and try to be good to people. The Bible teaches me this about life, though. That there's a start and finish to my life. I started April 23rd. I'll end sometime in the future. 
But the way God views it is the start is not just the birth of your life and the death of your life, but God views time as the start being the Alpha, Jesus, the start being the place, Eden, and then the end is the Omega, Jesus, and the end is Eden. Because when we get back into the eternal realm, here's what's weird, the tree of life is still there. The river of life is still there in this new heaven, in this new earth. This tree shows back up. This place where God brought life for the healing of the nations. So it it, it is a weird thought that we're moving out, but we're going to come back home. We're moving a direction to repeat and come back home. Now, to me and you, that really doesn't make sense. But to understand the Bible... It, it makes clear sense to make sense of these 66 books. Genesis, which is the beginning, and Revelation, which is the end, and sandwiched, in, in, we call it the middle. And uh, we read a little bit in the Old Testament. doesn't make sense. I don't even understand all that. So I'm just a New Testament person because it's just about Jesus, and he makes sense to me. And Paul, a little archaic. I try to figure him out. If you really want to go deeper, you study him. And so it just kind of becomes more of a devotional book to make me a better person, a better Christian, uh, you know, maybe make me feel closer to God, rather than the Bible being a roadmap to show me how God is thinking to go from the beginning of time to the end of time and that He's working a plan so that there's nothing haphazard happening on the planet at all. And I know we, you know, see what's going on in Washington right now. I know this is a crazy generation. What is going on? I'll tell you what's going on. Nothing haphazard is going on. God is very much in control, very much knows what's going on. And it may feel like things are chaotically moving. But in this realm and scope of time, God is working a plan. And the plan he's working, I'm going to start and begin to move out. And then I'm going to turn around and come back home. And everything I've started, I will finish Why? Because I'm the beginning, I'm also the end. So it tells me this, whatever I start, I finish. This is why when Jesus died on the cross, what was one of the final things he said? Right? And, And the way we teach that is Jesus was saying that the old covenant was finished. He fulfilled the law, he finished the punishment, and Jesus says it is finished. And then he gives up the ghost and he, quote, dies and they bury him. But if, if you're looking at it as it is finished, that he fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament, it's fine. That's it's what he did. But if you're looking at it as the nature of God, that everything God starts, he finishes. So that he started in, in the womb with Mary, and he finished his earthly walk on the cross. He had to finish it. He started in the beginning with creation. Uh, he was there in the beginning, and he will finish creation. Over here, so this whole concept of there's a finishing. So we laid this thought out as we talked about it. Yeah, we, we went pretty in depth with it, but I'll just comment that this could potentially be how the Bible views time rather than how we view time uh, outside of the red uh, triangle or the red line rectangles is the eternal realm. It's the realm of God. It's the realm that's not bound by time because God's eternal. He can be outside of time. So God can be at the very beginning of all time. He can be at the very end of all time. And to Him, it's all right now. So, uh, you know, God looking over time, to God, everything is right now. Uh, 
10,000 years ago is now, and 10,000 years later is now. It's all now to me because I'm in a realm not bound by time. So hence, when he says to Mary, remember how we taught it, when he says to Mary, your seed is going to crush his head, Mary's time frame is that must be Cain. Cain will kill the serpent, or maybe Abel. To God, looking at it, he talks to her as if it will be Cain, but God's looking 4,000 years down the road to Jesus, which makes you and I think, why would God even hang the carrot in front of her face like that? I mean, if it's going to be 4,000 years, what does it matter anyway? Don't tempt me like that. It's the same with Jesus when he says, Behold, I come quickly. And we go, why do you even hang the carrot in front of our face? It's been 2,000 years. That's a lie. That's not quickly. It's 2,000 years. And so we get sloppy in our living. We get sloppy because we're tired of waiting. But the way God is viewing time for him, everything is now. So when he promises Abraham, Jennifer, you'll have a baby, and we say, oh, Abraham had to make 25 years to God. It's like, well, yeah, 25 years, but to me it's like now. If I say it, I mean it. It's true. So when we read at the beginning, Jesus is going to return, whether it's another 10 years or one year or 100 years to God, it's as certain as if he's coming tonight. His coming 10,000 years from now is just as certain as if he comes tonight. And so that's kind of how you have to live. Like, I have to live in a realm to think kingdom-minded. And so Jesus being the alpha, the first, and the beginning, we bring a system going out, and then there's a turnaround. And we said, well, what's the turnaround? It's the last thing he birthed, and it was the rapture of the church. And then we come back home, and God finishes everything. So... These were the seven beginnings that we looked at. Uh, God began the heavens and the earth. Then there was the beginning of Satan's kingdom and his rebellion. Then there was the beginning of sin. Then there was the birth of the Jewish nation. Then there was Jesus, God in the flesh. That was the beginning. Then there was the resurrection. That was the beginning of something that had never happened before. And then there was the church. So through my study of the Bible, there were seven very distinct things that God initiated to start. That, that he didn't use us. He himself initiated it and began it. So he initiated heaven and earth. Didn't ask anybody's opinion. He initiated the, you know, the, the kicking out of Satan in heaven and, and his kingdom began. He initiated... Uh, you know, the, the obedience to, to put the uh, command for sin and then sin came. So there was the commandment that brought that. And so all of these things have their beginning. So in the beginning of all these things, what does God have to do to come back home? He has to finish it. So the way the Bible is laid out is that once we hit the New Testament things start finishing. Now, the way we call it the Bible, there's the Old Covenant and then there's the New Covenant. The Old Testament, there's no red letters. The New Testament, there is red letters. We kind of separate the two like that. But the way the Bible is laid out for us to understand is the Old Testament is the beginning of all of it. Then the New Testament, the Gospels, is the beginning of God in the flesh, the resurrection and the birth of the church. Now once the church is birthed in Acts chapter 1, we're very hard to find anything else that God births like that supernaturally. We just kind of start rolling down 
through life, and really the church is kind of the last thing we see this supernatural birthing. So for God to finish it, he turns around to come back home toward the Omega to bring it all back home, and what do we have? We have the finishing of the church, which was Revelations uh, chapter 1, 2, and 3. We have the resurrection, uh, which is chapter 5, chapter 4. God in the flesh, chapter 5. The Jewish nations were like uh, chapters 7 through 18. And we just start finishing all. By the time we're down to chapter 18, 19, and 20, God starts dealing with the kingdoms of Satan, the kingdom of sin. He starts uh, all the rebellion. Everybody has to stand before him. And then the end of Revelation is, and behold, I saw heaven and earth, a new heaven and a new earth. It just flips the course and God deals with all of it as we go. And the book of Revelation is laid out this way. It's laid out as a book of finishing. He's going to finish the church. He's going to finish his promise to the Jewish nation. He's going to finish his judgment on creation. He's going to finish his judgment on the kingdom of the Jews. He's going to finish his judgment on the Gentile nations. And then a new heaven and a new earth is going to come. Then we ask you to do this, to have a rethink of the three kinds of people in the Bible that God deals with. God does not just deal with us as humans in general. He deals with us in categories of people which seem very unfair. But those categories of people are all made up of humans, but they have different prophetic purposes and things. And those three groups of people are the earthly nations of a people or the Jews and the Gentiles. The Bible sees it no other way than Jew and Gentile. Jew, you're either of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're a Hebrew, you're an Israelite, or you're everybody else. So God looks at it as Jew or everybody else. Then the New Testament comes along and we get a, a brand new influx of people called the people of God and we become a holy nation. And the weird thing is we're made up of Jews and made up of Gentiles, but we're distinctly a different group of people. We're a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people that belong to God. We are the body of Christ. Uh, we are the nation of God on planet Earth. And God deals with all of these differently. And now some of the reasons we can get kind of confused in our theology is we try to just categorize every scripture as just to everybody when sometimes God is speaking directly to the Jew, sometimes directly to the Gentile, and sometimes directly to the church. Most of the Gospel of Matthew, when he's talking about the end in Matthew 24, he's talking about the Jews. Uh, Gentiles wouldn't have even understood what he was saying. Uh, when he's talking about, you'll see the temple and the temple in three days, a Gentile would have had no understanding really at all of all of that, but the Jewish mind did. So God's got to deal with these. How does he do it? He deals with the church first, Revelation 2 and 3. Then we believed and taught that there would be a rapture. God would finish the church at the rapture. The church would no longer have a mission to win souls. It doesn't mean that the church quits existing. It means that the church's role shifts. We go from soul winning to ruling and reigning. And so once the church is raptured, we move into a ruling and reigning role and less of a soul winning role. And then the rest of Revelation, God is going to deal with the Jews and he's going to deal with the Gentiles. Here was the rethink that we had. <clears throat> this is on your worksheet. We said Revelation was a book of certainty. It's not just allegories and fables, 
but it's certain events, places, people, and times culminating in a conclusion of God's redemptive plan. And that we have to think beyond Revelation is just an allegory. And we talked a little bit about that, that people think it's just fables and allegory. It's not real. It's not true. And we took time to really dive in to prove how the book of Revelation is true. It's true events, true places, and true people in true time. And it's a book that's going to fulfill itself and come. Then we landed into chapters 2 and 3. So that was pretty much chapters 1 and 2. Uh, chapters 1 and now we jumped into chapters 2 and 3 for a while and we started talking about the seven churches where they existed now this is in the Middle East right now so this is the layout of the Middle East the pink area is the land that God promised to Abraham God said well this is the land that my people are going to own so it encapsulates a little bit of Egypt uh, quite a chunk of Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Syria and then outside of it are the seven churches. And if you remember, uh, I kind of leaned on that perhaps the reason God spoke to the seven churches outside of this area was to show us that he distinctly deals and sees the church differently than he sees the Jewish nation. And so to prophesy to them, he split them apart and he spoke to all of the churches that were in the Turkey-Greece area. This is a modern-day map of where those churches are in Turkey and then that little red spot is Israel that is the chunk of land about the size of Rhode Island in the United States that the entire world is going to fight over uh, in the Middle East now there's a lot of hatred uh, in the Middle East toward the Israelis they hate the Israelites there is going to be a fight and what we said is Lucifer is fighting for that red dot Lucifer does not want America. Lucifer does not want Saudi Arabia. He doesn't want England. He wants Israel because if he gets Israel, he can proclaim himself God on the mountain and call himself God and rule from there because that's where Jesus is coming. Because he's the Antichrist, this is what he's after. This is why there was such a hatred of the Jews when Hitler was coming through. It wasn't as though they hated the Jews. It was a prophetic thing. And, you know, and all this, we're going to be talking about it soon, but all this going on now in the Middle East, talking about peace, and now uh, there's talk now that there's going to be major war coming in the Middle East. I know right now we're all kind of hyper-focused on America, but uh, pony your eyeballs toward that way because there's a lot going on that's happening right now. So all these nations are going to be part of the battle, and we laid it out that John wrote from the Isle of Patmos, circled in yellow, and he wrote several letters to all of these churches, all seven of them. And we said that the order of these churches, as they're laid out, uh, give an orderly timeline of church history, that these were not just random churches. The seven churches were spoken of as also, because God is a God of time, each church represented a block of time. And here's what we landed on with each of these churches. The... Church of Ephesus represented the Apostolic Church, the Church of Smyrna, the Persecuted Church. And I'm giving you the dates historically when these churches existed and what they represented. The Roman Empire, Church of Pergamon, Thyatira, the Catholic Church that was birthed, Sarda, the Church of the Reformation, Philadelphia, the Evangelistic Church that some believe still here now and will be the church that's raptured. 
and then the church that's apostate, the church that gets cold, that has nothing to do with God. Uh, you know, Jesus rebukes them. I wish you were hot or cold, but you're lukewarm. And so this is kind of where we are at present in, is in the apostate church. And I would, you know, I'm inclined, I gave you this because this is what some people teach, but it definitely fits the history of the church. And it definitely tells us that we're in a place right now where everything that Jesus spoke to the church of Laodicea is happening before our very eyes. That the people of God are growing colder and colder instead of hotter and hotter and lukewarm. We laid out all of the stuff that deals with time and brings us into what we begin to talk about in the book of Revelation. The Old Testament timeline deals with creation, the patriarchs, the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments. The Gospels deal with Jesus, that's the cross. The book of Acts all the way through to the book of Revelation deal with the church, the letters that are written to the churches. That's the writings of Paul, uh, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the Gospels. And then we move into this weird time called the tribulation, which is what we call the end. We call it the wrath of God, the 666, the Antichrist, the, the kind of the stuff we talk about when we go through this period of time. And then that final thousand years on planet Earth with Jesus before we enter eternity. So we will live a thousand years with Jesus before we ever even get to eternity. So you got another thousand years to hang out on planet Earth before we ever hit eternal life. And during that thousand years, we'll talk about it, but during that thousand years, you will be ruling and reigning with Jesus based on what you're doing right now. So sometimes it feels like it doesn't pay to serve God. I don't feel like it's paying off to read my Bible. I don't feel like it pays off to be faithful. But there is coming a day where for a thousand years, God will look at your faithfulness and those that have been faithful in little, He will make ruler over much and you will be rewarded and you will rule and reign with Him. And then at the end of that thousand years, Satan is loosed again. It's probably one of my favorite sections of the Bible. And then we enter into what you and I would call eternal life. And we live forever and ever with God. And we'll talk about what we'll be doing because the Bible speaks about what we'll be doing through eternal time frame. The way we come up with that tribulation, that line that I gave you, is we went back to the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel tells us and gives us an introduction about this tribulation period. 490 years are determined for your people and then the holy city to finish it. And we laid out that this tribulation period primarily deals with the Jewish people. The prophecy of Daniel says there these years are determined for the people, that's the Jews, for the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and God is going to finish something. So my take that... Uh, the apocalypse that we talk about that we're all going to go through is not for us, the church. It's for the Jewish people. It's for the holy city of Jerusalem. It's for God to get ready to cleanse that area so he can come back and rule. And he's going to finish all the transgressions. We went to Daniel and we began to pull out Daniel's prophecy, which gives us the, <clears throat> the outline Daniel did of history which is brilliant that the book of Daniel could so be so precise that he would outline history. And so Daniel began to outline all the nations that would rule, and at present we're at the very bottom. And we got kind of excited, remember that night when we talked about that. These people say, well, how close are we to Jesus' coming? 
Well, we're at the final feet of the prophecy of Daniel. So how close we are, I don't know, but you're in the feet. So come on. You, you, you've made it through a whole lot. And we're at least close enough that we're in the feet. And then Daniel prophesied this, that the final kingdom that's going to come is Christ's kingdom. So nothing else needs to happen on our planet before Jesus comes back. He, it is ready for him to come. He could come at any given moment. He wants to come. It's been fulfilled with Daniel. Uh, Daniel has prophesied. His prophecies have come. My opinion, you know, is that there's nothing holding God back except the timing of the Father. Uh, and I'll talk about that more later. Here it was laid out, those 70 weeks. We've seen that 69 of those weeks, this is how we get the tribulation period of 70 weeks, 69 of those have already happened historically. Then Jesus came and now we're living in the blue area called the church age. That's where you are right now. But there is coming a final seven years. That final seven years is called the tribulation period, the wrath of God. It's where all the uh, things we see in Hollywood, 666 and those kind of things come. It's going to be a seven year period of time. But it's a time of wrath. It's not just bad times. Bad times have always been on planet Earth. There's always been wars. There's always been famines. There's always been diseases. There's always been sin. There's always been wickedness. So the tribulation period is different in the sense that it's a time of wrath. It's not just uh, persecution from government. It is a time where God's wrath is poured out. So we have to be wise to look at it to say this, that the persecution that's coming is not from government to you and I. That's not the end of the world. Uh, when we go, oh, man, what if America turns and persecutes us? Is that the tribulation? No. Welcome to Christianity. We may get persecuted. We may get thrown in jail. That's not the end. Uh, that's just normal living on a planet that hates God. And it's happening all over the world, just not quite yet in America. But I have this weird feeling it's kind of on the way. And, but the, the tribulation period is distinctly different. It deals with the wrath of God. It's a, it's a doing of God. And one thing we said is persecution is the devil's kingdom against God. And wrath is God against Satan's kingdom and sin. Two totally different things. So don't confuse, we said, persecution with wrath. Here was a thought we had. We talked about heaven in chapter 4. I just threw it in because I felt like it would remind us a lot that heaven is a place of judgment, covenant, and holiness, open to humanity by the blood of Christ, wherein the church's body shall rule with him in his kingdom in order for the ages to come to know the mercies and the grace of God. And we just spent a whole time talking about heaven. What is heaven like? What are angels like? What are, what are the streets of gold? But we landed on something that I think is important. And it was we took some time to talk about the 24 elders. Because there was a lot of questions. Or who are the 24 elders? Are they Jews? Are they Gentiles? Are they the church? Are they the apostles? Are they Old Testament saints? Are they the, you know, the 12 sons of Israel plus the 12 apostles? And we landed on that they, they were... Christians who ruled and reigned that represented the heavenly Sanhedrin. The heavenly Sanhedrin we taught was God's court. Like we have courts here. God has a court. There was 24 of them and then we brought this thought which I thought was good. It's because I believe, this is just my opinion, so you can land on it if you want, but 
I believe the reason God selected 24 elders is because in our time frame of life here on planet Earth, and we're in time, is broken up into 24 time zones. And my belief that God in His infinite Godness has an elder that will rule over each time zone that will have other people ruling over these 24 hours. So when he says, you'll rule and reign with me for a thousand years, I believe God is so orderly that he has 24 elders in the heavenly Sanhedrin that oversee the government of earth, and you and I are stuck in time zones to rule and reign. My belief is, again, this is just my opinion, my belief is if God sticks me, which I hope he does, somewhere in Latin America with Mexican food for a thousand years, I'm going to be in time zone 13 because that's an unlucky, an unlucky number and I'm going to redeem it. So God sticks me in time zone 13 and says, Mark, you will rule and reign with me for a thousand years. I'm going to put you, David White and Chris Redman and Ryan Holdeman in time zone 13. And y'all are going to rule. You're going to be in quadrant 13, ruling hour 13 with me. You'll report to heaven to the 13th elder and let him know what's going on and what's taking place. You will come and report. To, you will bring a kingdom report. Even Zechariah says as we bring those reports to God from those nations, if they don't bring their offerings, then they're judged. They don't get rain, uh, which is really weird, right? Like for a thousand years, we're literally ruling and reigning on planet Earth. That, that's just my thought, and I had a lot of coffee, and it felt good. But that'll give you, some, <laughs> let's give you something to think about, right? Then we brought this together, the thought that rebellion deserves wrath, and there's two ways wrath will come to humans, and it's your choice. You get to pick. But the one thing we could not deny is that all rebellion deserves wrath. You believe it, I believe it, the world believes it. Even right now in Washington, D.C., I saw on the news today, they are working overtime to impeach President Trump. I think they actually voted and did. Why? Because all humans believe bad behavior should be punished. So it's already built into you and I as humans, bad behavior gets punished. Put there by God. So God, in his own self, lets us know everybody in the room believes bad behavior should get punished. Even if you're in uh, the drug world, let's say you're in a drug lord, you're in the mafia, even they, in their own life, believe bad behavior gets punished. It, we, we may kill you, we may chop your head off, but you're in trouble, you're going to get punished. That's put in us by God to know that bad behavior deserves it, Revelation is the book that gives us what we deserve. It's just daddy God showing up going, all right, you've rebelled long enough. And so two ways wrath comes. The wrath either comes to the lamb on the cross, and if you choose that lamb, Jesus, wrath doesn't come to you. You get life. But if you reject Jesus, then you get the lamb with the scroll that shows up in chapter 5. And there was given a scroll to this lamb, I think chapter 6. There was given a scroll to this lamb. And then all of these things of his wrath begin to pour out. So the one thing we know is the only way to get around it is you either submit to the lamb and get life or you reject the lamb and get death. But the lamb of God is why the Bible says there is no other way to be saved. 
is because he's the one that handles the wrath of the Father. Then we laid out the seven years of tribulation. And we kind of spent some time laying out the book. So I'll just leave that there for a minute without a lot of comment. But we're moving into chapter 11. So in the time of, of the tribulation, seven years, next week we move into year three and a half. Now, this mid-trib is not a time frame because once you hit three and a half years, you're moving toward the fourth year. But what's happening is this three and a half time year mark, there's a lot of stuff that's going to be going on. There's a lot of stuff that's happening in chapters 10 through 15 give us this midpoint of all this stuff that's going to be going on in the world as we move toward the end, and the very end are those dirty words we hear like Armageddon, Mark of the Beast, and all of those things that become really tragic. So we'll be talking about in the next month this pink area. We've got a lot to deal with, with Satan's kingdom, with the rise of Antichrist's kingdom, the economy. We ended one of our teachings with a conclusion, and this was the conclusion. The Heavenly Father hands the scroll, which was the book of life, to the rightful owner which is Jesus, the righteous one, who opens that, begins to open its contents by removing the seven seals, each representing the finishing of God's wrath, leading to the completion of God's kingdom rest. So as the seals began to open, we studied it. It's the finishing, the beginning of the finishing of God's wrath. <clears throat> I'll let you fill that in in case it's a little long. And then we jumped into looking at what is the wrath of the Lamb. Uh, this different kind of look on Jesus that definitely appears differently than the suffering servant that was hung on a cross. And now we've got Jesus, the righteous Lamb, who's coming to judge the world. And His wrath has a beginning point. Remember, everything God begins, He finishes the Lamb's wrath begins in Revelation chapter 6 and it ends in Revelation chapter 15. So these next several chapters is going to be the wrath of God that is moving quickly to unfold while at the same time that the wrath of God is being poured out, the kingdom of Lucifer, the Antichrist, is rising rapidly at the same time. It's all moving together at the same time. The Lamb's wrath comes in three successive waves. Wave number one is the seven seals. Wave number two is the seven trumpets. We, we got that far. Wave number three are the seven bowls. Each of those waves, in my opinion, deal with a different section of cleansing and rebellion. The first seven seals hits people the seven trumpets deal with creation, all the things that begin to happen with creation. And then the final seven bowls are the wrath of God poured out on Satan's kingdom. But they come in three successive waves. Each, each number seven releases the first in the next number seven. So they're coming in a succession. So one through six, that releases the first of the next. Then one through six, the seventh releases the next seventh and... And we move to this. Here's the first wave that we talked about. Wave number one. 1.75 billion people will die in the first wave. So one third of the entire earth. So what I did is I took planet earth and laid it out for you. 
And so after the first six seals are opened up, uh, that would be how many people, because what I did is I went through and added up the populations of North America, South America, all of these different nations, Europe, I added up the people. And so 1.75 billion people represent North America, the full North American continent, all of Latin America, all of South America, Spain, all of Europe is basically the first wave of how many people will die. So we made a joke, I didn't mean it in a sarcastic way, but a joke of this is how silly it is to think that we humans are going to be able to make it through the tribulation period by having a generator living in the backwoods of Alabama. You know, that I'm going to somehow miss this. And I would just think right now, even if you did have a generator in the backwoods of Alabama, what do you think planet Earth would look like if in less than a year, 1.75 billion humans were dead on the planet? The amount of little sheer bacteria and disease and flies and just... Right? I mean, the putrid smell that would come, the things that are impacted, the water's impacted, the water's turned to blood. It's just not as romantic as Hollywood makes it while we're living in the trees running from zombies. It's a lot different than zombies. It is a, it is a wrath of God, not a Hollywood zombie play out. The second wave that comes through, uh, wave one, here they are laid out for you. Uh, the waves comes like this. Seal one is a conquering of people. Seal two kills people. Seal three, there becomes a famine, a lack of food for people. Seal number four, one quarter of the earth population dies. Seal number five, there's the cry of all the martyrs that have died. Seal number six, creation kills more people. And then it's seal six, there's a revelation that this is different. Because here's what's interesting. You want to read this. Uh, the very interesting thing here is they don't say hide us from Mother Earth who's mad at us. Hide us from climate change. Hide us from bad government that's killing us all from communism, Marxism. They scream the day of God's wrath has come. Like even these wicked humans realize what is happening here is not man-made. This is a God thing that's happening. That brings us in next to wave two. <clears throat> wave 2 of creation, another 3.5 billion people are dead on planet Earth. And one-third of all the ocean is turned to blood. So that pretty much takes care of all the Great Lakes and then the entire Pacific Ocean is turned to blood. And then what we've added death-wise is we've added all the people uh, that are up in Greenland uh, up in the Arctic areas, we've added all the people in, in the continent of Africa, all the people in India, all the Indonesia or not India, all the Indonesian islands, Polynesia, all the people in New Zealand, and all the people in Australia are dead now, number-wise. I'm not saying it's going to happen to these things, but this is how many number of people die in the second wave. Again, trying to intimate this is not just a weird. Government gets mad and we start losing food and we have to go off grid. The entire world, something's happening. God is judging them with death and with blood. Now the reason this is happening is he has to honor his character. Sin deserves death, 
but he cannot come back and rule unless the earth is purified with blood. Because wherever there's sin, there has to be the purification of blood. So at the same time, just like with Jesus, there was the horrid punishment of Jesus on the cross. Marred to a point you couldn't see him, but there was the shedding of the blood that purified the wrath and the anger that came. They both worked together. There was the wrath, then there was the blood. My belief is what's happening is God is pouring out wrath to judge sin, but because God is so holy... He could not come down and rule and reign with us until the entire planet is purified with blood. And so he's moving that way to purify the whole planet with blood. By the time we get to Revelation in the end chapters, it's pretty telling. Here's the second wave, the trumpets. The first trumpet, one-third of all the trees and the grass are burned up. One-third of all the sea creatures and all the ships are destroyed. So it's going to be a pretty telling sign. There won't be much commerce, trade, or war. You know, we talk about, well, there's going to be nuclear war, nuclear subs, uh, you know, all of that. But the, the reality is nuclear ships and warheads and submarines don't work in an ocean full of blood. So God's already eliminating all that, which has led me to my point when we were teaching this. I believe the end-time battle is going to be more hand-to-hand combat and not a lot of nuclear warfare because most of it God has eliminated through all the stuff that's going on in the world. There won't be any way to pull it off. A third trumpet sounds, a third of the waters, the rivers are destroyed. Uh, so we start dying off because of a lack of water. Then one third of all the celestial bodies, the stars, the sun, the moon, everything that brings light to the earth and life to the earth is destroyed. Then there's a five-month torment, which there's five months on planet Earth that nobody's allowed to die. They're just tormented. And they even try to kill themselves, but they can't. I I tried to study that out. It was gruesome, so I'll just leave it alone. But, But the fact that it would be such a tormenting time that people will try to die, but because death is a spirit and not an event, God will hold back the spirit of death And even though people may shoot themselves in the head, they won't be able to die because death will be held off of them. Because it's death is a spirit. It's not an event. And so when it says they can't die, my belief is that God holds back a spirit of death that cannot take them. And even though they're trying to kill themselves and kill one another and take their own life, they blow their head off, but they're still alive. They don't die. But they're just tormented in pain, suffering, sorrow, because that's the wages of sin. Trumpet number six, a third more people die from plagues. And then trumpet number seven, there's the destruction of all the people that destroy the earth. This is the third wave of how many people, again, I googled, population of planet earth based on countries and all of that and I did the math this is what it looks like after wave three so after wave three all of the oceans are blood all of the waters are blood all of the rivers are blood death is on every continent and everywhere and the only amount of people that would remain would be whoever would you know populate basically China Russia, and then all the Middle Eastern countries. 
which pretty much fits the prophecies that are given, is that what God is doing, my belief, I believe God is pushing the entire world toward this one little exclamation point called Israel because that's where God is going to reign from. And he's going to rule and reign from there. And so the final battle of Armageddon that happens will happen with a motley group of people because two-thirds of the entire world has been eliminated. There will only be a handful of people left to come against Jerusalem to try to take it over, led by the Antichrist. So in a weird way, scripturally, God is pushing the battle himself toward Israel. So that really what lefts remain is, you know, people say, well, will America be involved? Are we going to help them fight? And, and I say, we just have to think differently. You're thinking how battles are normally fought, which are nation against nation. This is not nation against nation. This is God versus Satan. And so God doesn't need America to help him out. And, and if this, this is just logic, let's just use logic. If this is what God says happens to the earth, it pretty much stands to reason there will be no naval bases, air force bases, army bases, marine corps, nobody. Because by the time the earthquakes happen, the blood happens, the famines happen, the stars fall from heaven, the diseases happen, there's no more water, most of the ocean is blood. You won't be able to fly airplanes because all of the earthquakes will have taken down all of the technology, all of the uh, ways we could communicate with one another. You can't have ships. You won't be able to fly because there won't be any gasoline because most of the way we would purify natural oil will not be possible at this level. So there'll be no oil, there'll be no water, there'll be no gasoline, there'll be no food. So once we're to this point, you're down to, what I believe, you're down to about two weeks left because that's about all we could live with no water unless we've stored it up somewhere. But if all the water on planet Earth is pretty much done, with you, you basically only have a few days to live. So once we hit this wave, it is a quick escalation of what begins to happen. It moves rapidly and in quick succession. As a matter of fact, the whole thing is only a seven-year period of time, and most of it happens in the last three and a half years. So let's look at it this way. What would it look like if in the next three and a half years, this is what your planet looked like? I mean, it just doesn't stand to reason that what we think the end is, that it really is. It's going to happen that quickly. There won't be any way to even create anything to get out of this thing uh, when it starts happening. I don't mean to sound so morbid. Everybody's real quiet. Nobody wants to eat donuts. But, um, all right. So the final thing is foul malignant sores on the, uh, the people that are left. The Bible says what happens to these remaining in case you felt like, let me get into that gray area and make it. Here's what happens to those that are left over. Foul malignant sores, they'll be scorched by the sun. Demonic spirits will inhabit them and 75-pound hailstones will rain down on them. So if you make it into that little area and go, yay, we made it, it's not a very pretty sight. You'd probably just hang out here in Georgia and get out if you can if we're going to be post-trib. So here are the, the third wave. The plagues that are going to come, we'll be talking about these. These are coming in the future. The first plague are foul, malignant sores, and the number 666. All the water turns to blood. All the fresh water turns to blood. All the remaining people left on the earth are scorched by the sun. Darkness and sores for everybody who has the mark of the beast. Demonic preparations begin to happen as demons begin to move with humans. 
and then the whole earth becomes shaken. So it really just kind of escalates, getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Here was the question we ask in all of that. Why would a loving God bring such judgment and destruction on the very humans we say he loves? I think that's a fair question. You tell me Jesus loves me, then why is he going to do all this to me? Here was the answer. The wrath of God will be poured out on humans and on the kingdom of Satan because God desires to dwell with humans and that dwelling place, earth, must be made completely holy. God. Now the reason I believe that the Father doesn't come down and live with us during the thousand year reign is because He cannot come down and live with humans who've not been purified. And there will be a whole race of Gentiles that get to live in the kingdom. The Father doesn't come down until the end of a thousand years. We rule and reign with Jesus here because that's how holy God is. We kind of teach now that it doesn't matter how you live, Jesus loves you all. But understand this about God, He's super holy. Absolutely. He cannot dwell with sin at all. This is why in the Old Testament, when Uzzah just reached his finger out and touched it, he just dropped dead. Seems so unfair, but it teaches us something about the absolute holiness of God. So when we look back at that picture and go, how horrible, right? That's what we're thinking. Oh God, how horrible. God's looking at it thinking, how wonderful. Because out of it comes my holiness. And uh, it's why Jesus is so necessary. Here is how it plays out, understanding God's wrath. There's the he who was, Jesus who was. The wrath is poured out on Satan before Adam. Then there's I am who is. That's the wrath was poured out on the Son. So God's fair. God judged Satan before Adam. Then God judged the Son for Adam's sin, and then who is to come? It's the wrath on the kingdom so he can dwell with Adam. So God really wants to live with us. So all of this purification of evil and everything God's doing is because he desperately wants to dwell with us, and that's what he's moving toward. Then there's the devil's wrath, which excites people to study all his wrath. Here was the scripture we're going to get into in a few weeks. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell with them, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down having great wrath, and his time is short. Here is the devil's wrath we talked about. He plays tricks on us. This is all in Revelation 13. I cannot wait to get there. Here is Revelation 13. It sounds pretty familiar, as if we're here now. Trick one is verbal abuse to shame. We're there. Make peace with the Jewish people. I think seven nations have made peace this last year. Establish governmental control of health. That's happening now. Yielding of freedoms to maintain peace. Happening now. Control the economy and freedom of thought. Happening now. Disdain for anything God. Pretty much true. And then trick seven, comply or die. I didn't look at America last year and write this. This is Revelation 13. But it's pretty much happening right now in the very world we live on. We talked about silence in heaven. I'm not going to go there. It's not really going to uh, matter much. But there was a silence because of slaughtering, uh, a worshiping of self. Talked about the Antichrist, which is where we get next week. We start picking him up. And here's the spirit of Antichrist that's on the scene. We looked at the spirit of Antichrist, and I think you'll find that we're kind of there now. Government is your source. How many of you are excited about the new $2,000 you're going to get? One person laughed. I'm excited. I'll take yours if you don't want it. <laughs> We're probably scared of it now. 
Government will be your source. This is the spirit of Antichrist. Government will meet your needs, which is happening right now. Y'all stay home. We'll send you money, PPE to take care of your business. We'll take care of you. Government controls your happiness. Just trust us. We have your best interests in mind. Vote us in. We'll take care of you. Government controls your health. Shut up. Listen to us. We know what's best for you. And government controls your future. And all of that is not taken from America. It's taken from Moses in Egypt. But it's a spirit of Antichrist that will show up in any government. And if you feel like that's our government right now, then maybe the spirit of Antichrist is in America as well, working in our government. Then as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be. But the days of Noah had one thing. You either comply or die. You either get on the boat or you get off. Uh, if you don't make the boat, you die. You either build the boat like I tell you, you die. The sign of Noah's day is comply or die. So here is our final thought. How will the Antichrist bring it out? We walk through Revelation 13. Comply for your safety. Comply for your family. Comply for your health. Comply for your others' health. Comply for your, so you can shop. Comply so you can eat. Comply so you won't be shamed. Comply or be silenced. Comply or be banned. Comply or be jailed. And then finally, comply or die. And we, just so you know where we are, we are at number nine. You don't do what we say, we ban you. We'll cut the president off. We'll cut you off. We'll stop your Twitter, your YouTube, your Facebook. You don't post what we like. You don't, you don't wear your mask. You don't do what we say. We're going to shame you into wearing a mask. We're going to silence you if you don't. You talk about the, the vaccine, we'll silence you. We'll, we'll ban your post. We don't want you to say anything about us. You don't wear a mask, can't eat. Don't wear a mask, can't shop. Don't do what we tell you. You don't get your vaccine. You can't go out in the public. Uh, if you don't listen to us, we'll just ban everything you do. And oh, by the way, you will be jailed. And oh, just so you know where we're headed, if you don't comply, we'll kill you. I'm not saying that'll happen here in America. I'm saying all of that is the spirit of Antichrist. And the weird thing, this is just weird, it's happening right now in our country. But it's normal. It's called the new normal. It, it just gets us into thinking, this is just the new normal, man. You do it for your safety. You do it for other people. You do it for your health. You do it so you can shop. You do it so you can travel. You do it so you can go to school. This is why you do it. You need to listen. You need to obey. You need to help humanity. You need to do what we do. And even if it's done with a good motive, which I'm not saying it's a bad or good motive, but even in the motive it's done, it's still moving toward a spirit of Antichrist because this is Revelation 13 where we're headed. You either take the mark or you die. And we're already moving people to that point right now in the way we think of how we treat other people. And then the final thing that's so important in the book of Revelation is your donations greatly help as we keep your children. And you either comply or die here. I felt like it was a great ending. I already had you set up. You either comply or we kill you. But thank God for Miss Jennifer and Nessa. They, they are so kind to uh, take care of our kids every week, to make sure that your children are well taken care of and loved on. But we pay for that service. We let you do it for free. But we do pay the people to work, so your gifts help. You can give here in the baskets, and we'll take it up. Any donation you want to do help. Of course, we give you the coffee for free and all. 
So we just say as you go out the door, you want to leave a 5 or a 10 or make a donation, do so. You can do it online. It all helps. Everything will go toward pulling off Believer's You. I know that was a little long, but I just wanted to kind of catch us all up so we're all kind of fresh back in the mode. Revelation chapter 11, we kick off next week at 7.15. I love you. I bless you. Have a great night. I'll see you Sunday. Thank you so much for joining us on the Believer's Church YouTube channel. If you would like more information about Believer's Church, you can visit mybelieverschurch.com. If there is anything that you need prayer for, please email us at amen at mybelieverschurch.com. Be sure to check back next week for a brand new message.